Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to the author Peachy Keenan on a book that's coming out in June called Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. That's being published by Regnery. Their description of the book is spot on, often satirical, always insightful. The contributing editor of the American Mind and mother of a brood, Peachy Keenan, argues that the only way we can save our families, ourselves, and the world, even California, where she lives, is by embracing our inner domestic extremists and sweeping failed notions of third-wave feminism and identity politics nonsense into the garbage can of history. A few of the subjects she covers are parents are the bosses of their kids, babies are good, more babies are better, two sexes are plenty, your career is overrated, feminism is how the unpopular and undateable cope with life, mainstream American culture destroys families, and finally... We are going to win. And so for this interview, I started with the last question first. And so this is our conversation. So this was an an extremely interesting book, but I want to start on this podcast with, I think, the proposition that surprised me the most. And in fact, probably the only only one that really surprised, surprised me, which is you think that we're going to win the culture war. Um, I think that we can absolutely win the culture war. Uh, obviously it's going to take a little bit of work and effort and a lot of people, you know, joining me and joining you, um, becoming more domestic, but yes, this is imminently winnable, but we definitely have to have to wake up. So here's a here's a question I had about that, because when I look at the polling data in Canada, the United States, the UK, other Western Anglosphere countries, it always strikes me that the people we're fighting own the elite institutions. And yet, if you look at, say, the number of people who think a child should be able to go on puberty blockers or that a man can get pregnant, it's still vanishingly small. And yet, is it collective cowardice that allows for these things to continue? How would you say we got here when you look at the disparity between who runs the show and what the ordinary person actually believes? Um, Well, I think that there's sort of larger issues that, you know, basically... What, what we've what we face is like you said these global elites and they're just kind of pressing to look for weaknesses in the people they want to control you know in in western countries mostly and this seems to be a very effective route into kind of the soft underbelly of shall we say like the normies um middle class american families this whole the whole gender stuff seems to they seem to have found a very effective kind of backdoor into children's minds. And so I mean I don't think they care one way or the other what gender anyone is or they I mean they know themselves if you look at their own families there's not a lot of transgenderism going on you know in the elite families of the world. Um it seems to be really something that come that is coming out of like the lower middle classes, the middle classes. It's largely a white uh, condition in terms of like the demographics of the children who are who are kind of going through this the puberty blocker you know one way train to hell basically but it's very effective at kind of capturing their minds which is um, what they've been trying to do for a long time through you know K to twelve education and um, 
indoctrinating them via via movies and TV and 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 TikTok and all the rest. But this is just one more avenue where they can kind of control their thinking and their thoughts. And the wonderful side effect, the the the, the extra benefit to them is they get these people to choose their own sterilization. We have a giant population of people who are now embracing self-sterilization as some kind of freeing, like wonderful, liberating, um, you know, lifestyle. And so that's a benefit to them too. They don't have to worry about us, you know, reproducing in great numbers. So two things. Define for us what a domestic extremist is and then tell us how you decided to write this book. <laughs> yeah, so a domestic extremist for my book obviously is, you know, not what the government says a domestic extremist is. This is this is a movement where I'm trying, I wrote the book to try to persuade more people to sort of follow the path that I went down, which is becoming just simply extremely domestic. In other words, someone who's extremely domestic who chooses a more domestically extreme lifestyle is someone who chooses to live according to ways that, you know, women lived within recent memory. And it was considered completely normal, you know, to get married younger, potentially not wait until you're fully finished with your career and established to get married, but instead do it in your twenties. Um, don't limit yourself to maybe one or two kids, uh, have the, have a, a little bit larger family and seek to stay married and to value then once you have your family, you know, to protect that, <laughs> to conserve them, to protect your children from, you know, all the kind of degenerate influences in really in, 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 in the culture that are focused on kids and focused on women. And it really just means, you know, rejecting all the lies of feminism. And these are things that I believed belief, you know, all through my teens, college and my 20s. I mean, I like to say that I escaped feminism by the skin of my teeth and some somehow managed to at the last second kind of wake up and got married, had a child. I never wanted a large family. I didn't really think about it. I thought, well, one day, you know, I don't know. And then the minute I started, the minute I became a mother, I realized, oh, wait a second, this is what I want to do. And so my book is an attempt to kind of remind people, don't, don't wait, you know, uh, you, 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 you want to make a decision now. You don't want to make the decision now to be child-free, which is like the, the biggest trend really among younger people, because that's a, that's a decision you're going to have to live with in your thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and, you know, be very careful making that decision. Now, I've said this on this show before, but I, I come from a, a, a pretty big family. I'm the oldest of five. My my mom come, came from a big family. My dad came from 11 kids. And one of, one of the things I found when I, when I went to a secular university was that people like just couldn't fathom the lifestyle that I'd come from. And what I mean, they couldn't fathom it when, when, when young women um, said, you know, I, I just could never do that. I don't think they just just meant, you know, I, I, I could never imagine myself doing that because I have all these other plans. They literally didn't think that it was possible anymore. Like the way our culture is set up, the way people have been inculcated in school, the way they envision and imagine their lives, they literally think it's impossible to get married young and have a bunch of kids. So do you think that this is a, a pretty insurmountable barrier or do you think that there's a route in for people who grew up with this kind of lifestyle being so totally foreign to them, they had nobody to observe 
growing up that lived that kind of life. How does somebody who grew up in the culture that we see today access the culture that you're describing and advocating for in the book? Um, you know, this is sort of like the journey that I went on also, because I could never envision it for myself. I grew up a, you know, secular atheist. Um, my mother was a housewife, but I was not, I never set foot in any kind of, you know, I, church. I was never exposed to anyone who had a big family or was living this sort of lifestyle. And so I had to kind of stumble my way through the darkness also. So my book is also a way that people can, you know, <laughs> find out how I did it. Um, but it, it, it does seem impossible because women are young women, especially are being told that, you know, the, the only way to provide value to society, the only way to be considered a like a, a, a valuable person is through your job and your career. And so and the truth is you there. I mean, in a way, they're right. You cannot have a bunch of kids and a full time job and maintain a, a healthy, stable marriage and also feel happy and, you know, uh, excited about your life because that's just an, uh, an overwhelming, crushing uh, amount of work. It, that is true. And so, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the best way to think to do this and really the only way to do this is, and it's obviously in, in these economic conditions, it's hard. I mean, I, I acknowledge that, but you know, the best way to do this for you, for the, for your children and mostly for your sanity is when children are little, when babies are little, you know, they need their moms and that's it. And so it really requires a kind of, um, refocusing of the mindset of like, well, in order for me to have a good life, I need to have this job and this career. And these are my goals. Those are great. I'm not against women working. I'm, I bit, I was a working woman my whole life. I still, you know, I work at home now. That's totally fine. But if you want to have, you know, a chance at the incredible benefits and the joys of having, you know, a few, a few kids, at least maybe, um, you have to kind of reorient yourself away from work being the thing that makes you most fulfilled. And yes, it does. It, it may require you to spend the first few years, you know, spending more time at home. And that's just, you know, that's a good thing. Like that is not a, a, a terrible sacrifice to make. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. And you, and it, it, it may require you to like, let's say not live in New York city. You know, I mean, these are just choices you have to figure out in your life path. And I figured them out a little bit late. <laughs> and so that's why I wrote the book. I want to help other people, men and women, you know, avoid these terrible pitfalls because, you know, you can make a certain choice and then you wake up 15 years later and whoops, you know, uh oh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot to do the other part of my life. Now, what you say and so much of what you say in the book is is obviously true or it was obvious a short amount of time ago. But one of the things I kept on wondering was how you persuade people who are young that what you're saying is obviously true. Because of course it, it's a trope that we never realize how wise, you know, our parents were, or they, how, how good the advice we got when we were young was until we're old enough to have made our own mistakes and realized we should have just followed it instead of trying to figure out our own path. But what would you say to 17 year old you to convince her of the thesis of your book? You know, the good news is that, uh, 
I'm not the only one making this case now. Um, my, I have a young teen daughter. She's like in her early teens and she has some limited social media, you know, access, mostly Instagram. And, you know, she's told me that she sees a lot of teenage girls, college girls talking about rejecting feminism and not and reject totally rejecting the whole gender ideology thing and thinking that's gross and talking about how they you know can't wait to have children and they are excited to get married at a, at a younger age and so you know i'm not the only one saying this i think there has been a huge backlash among um among zoomer girls let's say against the kind of ravages of feminism because they're looking at older women you know, and thinking, okay, I don't, I don't like that. Just the aesthetics are bad. Like they don't look good. They don't seem happy. Like what, what's gone wrong here. And so they want, you know, to be, they're embracing more femininity. You know, they don't, they don't want to look like boys. Um, they want to look cute and they want to, you know, they want to, they're thinking about boys. And so those are all very healthy, natural, ancient, <laughs> eternal, you know, timeless, um, uh, milestones of become going from a girl to a woman that I think that, you know, nature finds a way. And I think it is finding a way. And I think that younger women, not all of them, obviously, I mean, some of them are, are inescapably trapped, you know, they're, they're caught in the web and it's going to be very hard. It's like getting, it's like they have to be deprogrammed from a cult, right? But a lot of these younger women are seeing the older ones caught in the cult and they're saying like, not me, I'm not going, no, I'm, <laughs> I want to be pretty. I want to be feminine. I want to attract a husband and I want him to be a Chad, you know? And so I'm not the only one convincing them, um, which is good, but it, it, it does feel like this is a little bit of like the vanguard of a countercultural movement. Um, that is sort of growing, which is makes me very optimistic. So, you know, back to your question, like, yes, there is absolutely hope. And I think it does lie with these, with the younger, the Zoomers who haven't been fully, <laughs> fully indoctrinated by the kind of like iron grip of like the feminist longhouse. Well, it's, it's very strange because actually CNN did this, this huge report on, on, on the trad wives trend on TikTok and social oh, media. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you called yourself a domestic extremist. It's basically what they said about these people, you know, like they, they strained yeah. at attempting to find some connections to the alt-right or something like that, because apparently being normal at this point, um, it, like it's something that needs to be, is needs to be stigmatized. But another thing that I was, I was really interested in because I've, there's been a real shift in the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, it is 2023 already, um, on the way we kind of approach the culture wars is for the very, for the longest time, it was like, we need to take back the culture, right? We need to sort of make sure there's more conservative art in the public square. We need to retake the public square. Richard John Newhouse's famous book, the, the naked public square basically made the case, um, that the public square needed to be informed by Christian views, but there's a growing consensus among some people that like American mainstream culture is now poisonous. And it's more along the lines of what you're advocating for, which is sort of, you know, domestic extremism, as in like this culture is it, it's dead. It's gone. There's not much good left in it. And I, I think, as you say, it is poisonous and it's, it's really hard not to look at. 
social media at uh, digital pornography at the entertainment available now right like glues like blues clues with a post-op transgender beaver with chest scars for kids like it's hard not to look at that and say that's poisonous do you sort of see a shift in we need to take back the culture to we just need to reject this culture entirely yeah that's that's actually the case i make that you know the way that we're you know, going to kind of like exercise our extremism is by simply removing ourselves from the culture, by just simply rejecting it. Now, I'm not saying you can't, you know, watch a Disney movie or like, you know, go to Disney, like, fine, like you can do that stuff, but you need to not, you know, the the, the era of like blind fandom, you know, to Marvel or Star Wars or whatever is like, has to kind of end. And, you know, part of that is removing your yourself and your kids from I'm sorry, mainstream public education, like not, not every public school will, you know, wokeify your child, but many of them will, especially if you live in a blue, in a blue state or a blue city. I have friends in Tennessee and their public elementary seems like completely great. Like there's no, no politics. It's still, (laughs) it's still free. You know, it's still a place where the kids can just be kids. But here where I live in Southern California, God help you, you know, you're getting in the public and privates, you're getting, um, you know, sixth graders are forced to introduce themselves with their pronouns every single time they have sex ed where they're, they're taught, I think, um, Brentwood school, which is a very elite private school in LA tuitions, like, you know, 50,000 a year celebrities go there in sixth grade sex ed, they're being taught about black queer love and anal pleasure and all the whole, you know, full blown, (laughs) everything you could dream of is going into the brains of 12 year old boys and girls. Um, And so you have to, you have to reject it. And it starts with, again, becoming extremely domestic is just kind of asserting your own authority over yourself, your home, your kids, and, you know, I'm not saying you need to raise them, raise, you know, unplug the Wi-Fi. I mean, obviously we live in, we live in a modern society. There's internet. It's teaching them and yourself about, you know, how to be smart about it and how to, you know, if you do the right level of inoculation of your children and your teens at home, they're going to be okay. They're going to know how to kind of sidestep the 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 the, the minds, you know, that are buried <laughs> all around your home. I mean, you can't fully protect them. You can't raise a child in a bubble forever, but you can tell them what to avoid and, and what it, you know, like what, why is pornography bad? You know, at at our, at our school, our teenagers are required to take like a, a class about, about this. What does it do to you? You know what? It's like taking meth basically, you know, it's that addictive, that deformative. Here's what will happen to you. And they're sort of, you know, they used to say, they used to have this program like scared straight about drugs, you know, in high schools, like scaring you about, you know, they used to show us those DUI videos of like dead people and car crashes. Like, this is what happens if you get drunk at the prom. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of like that for porn. And let me tell you, it it works. Like, it's very effective. And so <clears throat> just being, you know, truthful and honest and teaching your children and and yourself the truth about things is extremely effective. 
So when you're looking at the rejection of the culture, and this is an interesting question, I ended up talking about it for like an hour with with uh, my friend Matt Frad on his podcast, because a lot of people have a really difficult time figuring out where to unharness and, and where not to, right? Because the reality is that most households are completely addicted to one form of entertainment or another, whether it's their favorite streaming service, which comes with an enormous amount of poison, regardless of whether or not you try to be selective, um, whether it's, you know, video games, you name it. And so one of the things I'm interested in is just your take and your advice on something like Disney, because Disney is not Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or the Fox and the Hound or even Beauty and the Beast now, right? This is a this is a company committed to mainstreaming ideas to your kids with or without your consent. And so do you think that we should just have streaming services and practice discernment? Or would you advise that instead it's wiser to simply reject some of these cultural giants with the recognition? that they're a force for evil in the United States and the West at large. <laughs> and they, and they are, I mean, <clears throat> I think, you know, we've had Disney plus and then we've canceled it, but then, you know, my six year old wants to watch Milana, you know, so we'll get it back. And like, here's the thing. Old Disney is fabulous, right? The classic stuff is wonderful. It's what shaped American childhood entertainment. Like it's what built, you know, American civilians. Like Disney had a huge, huge role in that. Mickey Mouse, all the rest of it. Like it's incredibly, it's based. Okay. Um, you know, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, like those are those are extremely reactionary right-wing <laughs> indoctrination movies. So you should watch those. Um, what I do is I just, you know, we avoid, we avoid a lot of the new stuff, like for example, no one in my house wanted to see the new Buzz Lightyear movie with the lesbian space people and no one no one wanted to see it and we didn't see it and it didn't even come up. It wasn't even it wasn't even a thing. Like, uh, you know, someone asked me in the house like, "Mom, I want to see the new Little Mermaid movie," which looks bad, but not not necessarily like there's no, you know, transgender fishes as far as I can tell. So, you know, we we might see it, but it's not going to I'm not looking forward to it. Um, the new Peter Pan is a is a hard no for me. That's just like a girl boss. Um, Wendy's the new girl boss with the sword, feet de defeating all the all the pirates. That just looks so bad, and my kids or recognize like they've seen an ad for it somewhere, and it just looks terrible, you know. <laughs> so I think you can pick and choose, you know. I'm not. I'm not. I, I know a lot of. A lot of families who are who are extremely careful and will only they only have, they have no streaming. They'll only watch, let's say, Christian programming or Catholic programming, and that's totally fine. Um, I didn't grow up like that, so for me, you know, I'm a child of the '80s, and I love pop culture, and so I definitely want to share like my favorite movies from that era with my kids. So I'm not as strict, <laughs> but we're. We we totally reject all the all the anything that has gender in it or like random trans characters or you know, we or gay kisses, like that's just not for kids, you know? And I mean, I don't want them to see heterosexual kissing. Like that's not appropriate for little kids ever <laughs> anyway. It, so it's pretty easy. I mean, they don't hide it anymore. You know, you know, if a movie's gonna shove it in your face, like you already know, you're like, with well, that, we're not going to that one, you know. Well, I'll because yeah, it's, it's they're not trying to sneak it in anymore. They're trying to get a good ranking with the Human Rights Coalition. Yeah, they they mar they lead their marketing campaigns now with it. So 
Like, for example, there's a new uh, the new Spider-Man metaverse cartoon movie. And I have to say, I really I did enjoy the first one, the Miles Morales. I don't know if you saw it. My 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 little boy loved it. You know, and it was it was fine. Like it, it didn't have politics in it as far as I could tell. Um, you know, some girl boss stuff, but you know, what, you know, that's whatever, what are you gonna do? So, but the new one I saw has some quick flash of like a transgender flag in, in one of the girls in the, in the, in the, the girl, the female lead characters room. It's like a split second. I couldn't even see it. So I'm going to reserve judgment, you know, on that one. So what do you replace it all with? Because uh, part of me wonders, well, so like I grew up basically just reading incessantly and my parents bought me an enormous amount of books. So I actually grew up reading the classics, not because I was asked to, but because they were around and I enjoyed them. Right. Um, yeah. So everything from like the little house books to all that kind of stuff, like they shaped my childhood again, not because it was like required reading, but because those are the books that were in the house. How do you, how do you actually get kids interested in, in the stories that shaped American and Western civilization? I would argue, um, in the, in, in an age, uh, surrounded by technology. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 luckily it's at our, at our school, they do a lot of reading of, you know, great books, classics, um, classic children's books that are kind of mostly out of print now. In fact, um, things about like the old West and the founding of the country <clears throat> in terms of like, you know, 20th century books. I mean, my children love Tolkien. Um, I have a teenage son who's reading Dune. Um, you know, it is difficult. I mean, we don't, I really don't buy any new books. Like I, I buy no books that were written <laughs> after like 1993. I mean, we have Harry Potter, um, which they like. The older ones liked. The little ones are kind of like, eh, about it, which is fine. You know, see, when I when I when I was growing up, those were like wildly leftist and progressive, and now they're wildly right wing, and it's a really bewildering cultural journey. Isn't that funny? I know. J.K. Rowling has become this hero on the right, but her but she's a classic liberal. I mean, her you know, Dumbledore is 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 a gay man. You know, um, I felt like the books were pretty diverse, but she got hit with yeah. I mean, she's now a turf, so <laughs> she's not allowed to read those anymore. <laughs> So what kind of, a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one, one thing, but I do, I mean, I've been talking about this now for several years and many people on the right who are creators, creatives, writers, filmmakers, uh, see this huge gap in the marketplace and other companies have been trying to fill it. Like the daily wire ha has now a children's book imprint. Um, there are certain st streaming services that are trying to do kind of like more children's programming. It's mostly Christian programming. But listen, there is a absolutely massive uh, vacuum. Okay, it's totally wide open for for content, for books, um, TV shows, movies, all of it. That is for you know YA, um, younger, you know middle grade um, series and adventure books, all this stuff. It does it, and now I mean, if you could, if you go in a library, th this stuff is all it's all rainbow, like it's one hundred percent rainbowed out. And, you know, I think it'd be so wonderful to, to start producing content for that market that's not even right wing. Like, I don't really believe in, like, quote, conservative literature. Like, what is that? Like, I don't I don't want to read that. I want to read literature that is just simply apolitical. OK, it's just it's just it's classic. Do you know what I mean? It's timeless. So you don't mean like a picture book about Rush Limbaugh as a kid. You just want like a normal story about a normal family. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Normal people, you know, going through different adventures and calamities and whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know, Robinson Crusoe is not political. Uh, Little House is not political, you know, and they're just great and fun to read. And we need more books like that. We need movies like that, that are, that are, I mean, hyper-political and hyper-right-wing simply because they are not political. And that's the key, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because every franchise you mentioned has come under fire big time in the last couple of years. Like, they, they put out a documentary on Laura Ingalls Wilder, which I watched because I'm such a fan of the book. And they had some, like, a uh, poet come on uh, who's Asian explaining about how traumatized she was reading the book because of some racially insensitive stuff. And, like, the only thing I could think of listening to her was, like, grow up. Like, if you're so fragile that reading a children's book, you know, in which she'd never even seen an Asian person and you managed to somehow climb into the experience of somebody, you know, who wasn't white, it just was, the whole thing was quite bewildering to me. I mean, that's like me reading some book about, you know, ancient Chinese civilization and complaining because I didn't see myself reflected in the story. You know, it's like it's totally a joke. I mean, these people have nothing else to complain about. I'm sorry. <laughs> so when you're creating, you know, your your enclave uh, and you're attempting to raise. Well, basically, you're attempting to raise your children like our parents had the opportunity to raise us. I say all the time that, you know, my parents raised me for a world that didn't exist by the time I was older. Um, right. Like it was sort of gone because the digital age invaded every home. Hardcore pornography is now the norm um, among, you know, little kids, even five, six, seven, uh, eight, nine. Nine right. is the average age in both the U.S. and Canada for first exposure to this stuff. So as a parent who wants to essentially just not even do anything particularly radical just give their kids the upbringing they had give us some how-tos uh, that you lay out in the book okay so yeah i mean like i'm not you know i think obviously little kids shouldn't have phones because the, those little boys are all 100 of them are seeing porn on phones and they're showing it to their friends and they these are the boys that have phones at school which is insane so number one, no child should have a cell phone until, I don't know, high school. Like you, you can make the call. I'm not going to say this age, that age. My, my kids who, my kids who drive have phones for obvious reasons. Um, no little kid before high school needs a phone. Okay. Number one, number two, when they get a phone, you know, I'd say no TikTok. I would say very limited social media, um, you know, Instagram, maybe if it's just their friends might have you know, Instagram for just talking to friends. And we have a very open dialogue about, you know, anyone who's ever like reached out to them, they didn't know gets blocked, obviously. Um, and the other thing that's really helped me, I mean, is obviously raising children as, as observant Catholics. Okay. I, again, I was raised secular atheist. I thought religion was for stupid people. Look at those dummies in the, you know, in the flyover States. How do they believe in that stuff? And part of my kind of awakening into from secular liberal feminist to extremely domestic mom of a big family was becoming Catholic and kind of kind of converting. Um, so my children are now all cradle Catholics and they've been exposed to, you know, what the truth about abortion. OK, at a, at a fairly early age. And honestly, that alone seems to be have some kind of very powerful like image immunizing power on people once you can you understand like what it means to be pro-life what what a what a fetus in the womb is okay 
then everything else, you know, uh, seems more horrific, you know, everything from birth control, premarital sex, promiscuity, chastity, it all kind of makes more, a lot more sense. And it's easier to make the case to a kid of like why you shouldn't have sex in high school, why you shouldn't, you know, dress, you know, provocatively when you're too young, that all now makes perfect sense because there's, you don't, you want to avoid, you know, early pregnancy, you you don't, you don't ever want to have to put yourself through an abortion. You don't, you would never want to be faced with that situation. Now you know what it is. And um, so, yeah, becoming, having, raising children to be pro-life has seemed like this very, the most powerful kind of magic spell <laughs> that you can do. Mm, that's interesting. You say that my, uh, my five-year-old went to the March for Life this last week. Um, and yeah, it's a really powerful experience. So uh, sort of just to, to, to wrap it up before we, uh, we direct listeners to, to where you can get your book, what's the single most important piece of advice you would give to people who are say 16, 17, 18 right now, looking at their life and thinking about what decisions to make? I would say, I would say that the most important decision that you make in life and really the time, the moment when your life kind of begins is when you meet your partner, you meet your future spouse and you get married and you start your family. And my advice is not to wait on that. Like don't, don't, don't snooze on that. And, you know, I was told to spend my twenties having fun, right? Having fun. Don't settle down, you know, date a lot of people, whatever. That is the worst, the worst possible advice. You're never going to look better. You're never going to look more, more, more beautiful and youthful and vibrant than you will in your twenties. And you should not waste that. You should not waste that time of your life on randos and strangers who don't, who don't love you, who want to like take advantage of you for, you know, short-term pleasure. You should, you should definitely capitalize <laughs> and, you know, lock it down while you look your best It is my number one piece of advice for men and women. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Where can people find a copy of Domestic Extremist? Okay, yeah, my book comes out June 6th, but it's available for pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million. It's, the full title is Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. I'm very excited about it. Um, so yeah, you can pre-order it now, and it should be in most bookstores also starting June 6th. There's a Kindle version, an audio version, Audible version, and so far, pre-orders have been doing great. So I'm very excited. And you can follow me on Twitter at Keenan Peachy. And you can also read my Substack, peachykeenan.substack.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Peachy Keenan, the author of Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to listen to past shows or subscribe to future shows, head over to lifesidenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast content. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.